Good morning. For those of you who haven't been here the last couple of weeks, just to let you know that we are now at week three in our series working through Paul's letter to the first century church of Philippi. And you will hopefully have picked up a devotional book by now. But if you have not been here the last couple of weeks, as you go, you can pick up a devotional book near the front door in which there are eight weeks of daily readings, actions, prayers, things for you to do as we follow through this series looking at the book of Philippians. So please make use of that. Today, we've got to the theme of lordship. And I want to set the scene with this quote. Are you ready? This is a great quote. In the end, you can't simply like anybody who makes claims like those of Jesus. Either he's a wicked liar or a crazy person, and you should have nothing to do with him, or he is who he says he is, and your whole life has to revolve around him, and you have to throw everything at his feet and say, command me. Hold that, and we'll come back to it a bit later. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Mark, in his beautiful Irish accent, is going to thrill you with these 11 verses. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. I wish I'd been born with a Welsh accent. Mild Welsh accent, don't you think they're amazing? They just drift up and down like that. Irish, mild Irish comes close behind that. The first word we read was therefore. Therefore, in verse 1, reminds us always to connect what he's now saying with what he's just been saying. So we have to ask the question, what has Paul been saying so far? Well, through chapter 1, he's been doing this. He's expressed his joy about this church in Philippi. He's told them what he's praying for them, and he's encouraged them that the gospel will advance. Even though he's in chains in prison, 
And even though some people are preaching about Jesus from bad motives, such as his confidence in the gospel, it will go on. And then, chapter 1, verse 21, he makes this extraordinary and famous statement. He says this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That is so provocative. I'm not sure if I've arrived there yet. Have you? That's an extraordinary statement. He's saying, whether I live or die, I'm all out for Jesus, which is how I want you to live, he says to them. I want you to live in a manner that's worthy of the good news of Jesus. Even when and even though you too are having to suffer because you're following Jesus. And then we get to verse 1 in this passage here. So he's saying in view of all that, particularly in view of the fact that you're suffering, but the gospel is at work, stand together. In view of all that, he says in the first few verses here, he mentions if you have any of these four things, encouragement, unity, and so on. He says to them, if you've got any of these four things, be united in heart and mind, preferring one another above yourselves. But when he says, if you have this, or if you have that, and if you have the other, he's not saying it in the sense of, well, maybe you have, or maybe you haven't. If you've got it, then do this. If not, don't bother. He's not saying that. It's if, not in that kind of sense. It's more if, as in this kind of sense. If we'd said this morning to you, if you have breath in your lungs and reason to praise the Lord, then come on, let's worship. It's not an if, because some of you haven't got breath in your lungs. Presumably, you've all got some breath in your lungs because you're here. It's a matter of certainty, not of uncertainty. Because you've received these many blessings from being in Christ together, he says, be of one mind, be of one heart, be one in love and spirit. Which matters profoundly. It matters because of a profoundly challenging biblical principle that you will find right throughout the entire Bible and certainly through the New Testament. And it's this profoundly challenging biblical principle. The vertical, if we can use that term, is demonstrated and proved genuine by the horizontal. I kind of wish it wasn't like that. The nature of my relationship with God, to use a vertical term, is demonstrated, is proved genuine, is worked out, not just in a closet where I relate with God in my little silo here. It works out this way. That's the biblical imperative. So claiming faith in Christ, claiming that he's Lord of your life, means nothing if it doesn't relate, transfer to how you relate to people in love. Michael Eaton made this statement. It is easy to fool oneself about loving God, but it is not too easy to fool oneself about loving people. One might think one is loving God. The real test is whether it leads to a love for people. It's deeply challenging. 
But it's what Paul is saying at the beginning of this chapter. He's saying, because you've received all these blessings from God and from being together, make sure that works out in your life together and how it feels to be part of your community. The most commonly read scripture at weddings is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Most of us will have been to a wedding where we've heard it read. But it's done all wrong at weddings. It's taken out of context, which is chapters 12 and 14. Paul is having to get this church to work well together and do spiritual gifts well together. But he says this to them. This is so familiar, it may not sound shocking to you, but it's shocking. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but don't have love, I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Great words for God, even great faith in God, and great acts for God without love mean nothing. They are zero. Nil point, if that's the case. But how do I really know what such a life of love looks like? Good question. Paul, you're encouraging me because I have so much in Christ to make sure that the vertical works out horizontally. Great. Give me some instructions, which you do. But I'll tell you what I'd love to have. Wouldn't you love to have a model to follow? Wouldn't that help? Well, notice where Paul goes. Notice where he goes in his thinking here. He says in verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The church is never meant to be a place where we're just nice to each other because we're humanitarian. It's good to be nice to one another. It's better than not being nice to one another. But the reason behind being nice together is never simply that it's nice to be nice and it's easier to be nice and we should be nice because we're Christians. It's never like that. Through the Bible and through the New Testament, New Testament ethics are never merely humanitarian. They are always Christ-centered. They are always Christ-inspired. They're always modeled on him, which is where Paul is going in this passage. So unity, partnership, a collective life that together owns the name of Jesus in a worthy manner is founded on the example of Jesus himself. I think it would be fair to say that he's only truly your Lord if he's truly your model. Many years ago, people went around with wristbands with WWJD on. Some of you will remember that. Uh, Some of you are too young. Some of you will have worn those wristbands. It became a very familiar phrase. It became a bit of a cliche. But you know what? 
it's still a great question to ask. What would Jesus do? What would he do with that annoying neighbor of yours? What would he do with that person at work who nobody likes? What would he do with that person in Citygate who you just don't click with? WWJD remains an excellent question to ask, but it's hugely provoking every time as we ask, is my behavior horizontally patterned after Jesus Christ? You see, as surely as as thunder follows from lightning, as we receive it, two effects of the same event, so God's life in us produces love for God and love for one another. That is precisely how it's meant to work. Teachers came to Jesus once and said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's like one flows from the other. Love the Lord your God with all, your, all that you've got and love one another with all you've got. As surely as thunder follows lightning, two effects of one event, our new life in Christ produces love for him and love for one another, if it's authentic. And let me just remind you that love is not necessarily a feeling. We know that. Love is an act of the will that keeps blessing, keeps helping, keeps doing good, even when it hurts. Guess who's the model for that? So John Piper says this, Loving God is invisible. It's an internal passion of the soul, but it comes to expression when you love others. Loving God is made visible and manifest in us visibly, practically, sacrificially loving others. Let's just take a moment so I can ask you, where does that hit home for you? Where would the Lord, if he was here, as he is here, be whispering in your ear, For you, that's at work, primarily. For you, that's at home. You've run out of patience at home. Seek me to love again. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's here. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. What's your context for that being most relevant for you right now? And then very quickly, ask him for help in that context. And then Paul goes on. And he goes on to explain just how and why Christ is our model. And he does so with No exaggeration here at all. Some of the most profound words ever written about Jesus in their scope 
and eloquence, these words are almost unsurpassed. As he goes on to write, relate to one another with the same mindset as Jesus. This was the mindset of Jesus, who, though he was God, humbled himself, served us, suffered for us, and died in the most humiliating, shocking way imaginable for a Jew. Paul goes on to say, be like this one who, though he was God, did not use his status and position as God for himself, for his own advantage. He used it for us. The almighty, eternal, ever-existing, fully satisfied God in heaven, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, does not stand on his own advantages, but uses his godness for us. He's humbling himself all the way down to death, even death on a cross. Just before Christmas, I watched what I think was my first ever Mary Berry program. So I feel my Englishness has gone up a level. Mary Berry, the great love of England. She did a show with William and Kate, and in this program, uh, they were doing some baking. I have no idea what they were doing, but Baking, apparently, is what Mary Berry does. And uh, so they were cooking up something, and uh, William and Kate were involved. And the program took views of William and Kate as they engaged with various charities while during the year, I guess, it had been, which I think they do with genuine compassion. And during a visit to what's called The Passage, which is a homeless charity in London, which William supports as a royal patron, it was just an, I just noticed, to me, it was an interesting scene. So he was in the kitchen with Mary Berry. And it was this very ordinary scene of the future king of England. He was just chatting to Mary Berry, and he was putting the kettle on. And he was making a cup of tea for the homeless. He was doing the most mundane thing, genuinely out of love for those he was about to serve. It was true of William on that occasion that he did not hang on to his status and say to others, make me a cup of tea. He came all the way down from royalty and stepped into the mess to serve others who had nothing. This stepping down of which Paul writes is on a whole nother scale. The eternal, almighty God who fills all things in all ways steps down for us. And if our mindset towards one another is really shaped by the humility that Jesus showed, we will never again be able to say that we love him without loving like him. 
We'll never be able, if we carry any responsibility anywhere, be that at home, at work, in the church, in the community, we'll never be able to carry responsibility and lord it over others again. We'll never be thinking only, how do I benefit from this situation? How do I benefit from this person? And we'll never fail to be willing to go low in order to lift someone else up. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God, humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Let me just ask you to imagine for a moment, what what would this community be like if it was a bit like that? What would your house be like if you were more like that? What would your workplace be? How much blessing could you do? What would your neighborhood be? if you stopped ignoring those either side of you and stepped towards them in love. Now, most scholars agree that verses 6 to 11, Paul is quoting a hymn or a poem or a creedal statement used in the early churches. Now, it's interesting to see what Paul then goes on to say about Jesus. See, he says, Jesus is not only Lord because he's your perfect example, He goes on to say this. He says that Jesus is Lord because he is God. I know we've said that already, but Paul's about to unpack this for us a bit here. Because right here, right in that statement I just made, is the uniquely Christian claim. That Jesus Christ, while fully human, is not simply a good teacher. He's not just a good example. Nor is he only a prophet like many other prophets. I don't know of any religion that won't accept Jesus as an example, a teacher, and a prophet. There may be one. I don't know about it. Well, I guess Judaism would be possibly the one that wouldn't accept him as one of those. Actually, I'd accept him as some of that. That is not the Christian claim. The Christian claim is that this is God walking on the earth. This Jesus, verse 6, is in very nature God. In very nature is the Greek, is a translation of the Greek word morphe, which means the very essence of something as represented to us. He's the real deal. He's really, completely, fully God on earth with us, which is what the New Testament affirms right throughout. Consider these verses here. Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Hebrews chapter 1, the writer says, the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Exact representation, that's the translation of the Greek word character. And character is like an imprint. You know, if you get a coin, I've got a pound coin here. There's one on your screen there. A pound coin, that has been perfectly reproduced by being pressed on the original. The fullness of the original is here. 
Jesus is an exact imprint. That's why he could say, if you want to know the Father, look at me. He's an exact representation and imprint, fully God. As John says at the beginning of his gospel, in the, wor- in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was God, with God, and the Word was God. It is a staggering thought to think that it's not just a prophet or a teacher or a good example who's done this for me. It is God himself who has humbled himself and become my Lord. You see, this one who is eternally in very nature God added to himself the very nature, same phrase, of a human being. Such that verse 7, Paul says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant made in human likeness. Though he was found in appearance as a man, he was no less than God among us. The incarnation is not an act of one nature that Jesus, the Son of, that the Son of God used to have, being replaced by another. He was divine, he's now human. No, he's added to his divinity, humanity, and fully in both cases. It's utterly astonishing. Has your mind ever quite worked that out? Have you managed to plumb the depths of Jesus, fully God, fully man, his divinity partnered with his humanity, that this is the Lord, this is the one who loves you, this is the one who came for you, this is the one who humbled himself and died and is your model. And to own him as Lord is to live like him. It's utterly mind-blowing. Can I encourage you to find a good book somewhere and plumb the depths of who Jesus truly is? It will inspire us and make our horizontal utterly different than it might otherwise have been. And then he goes on. Paul goes on. You see, it doesn't end with Jesus' condescension and suffering and execution. We then get the wonderful words of verses 9 to 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow, will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen to that. Now, it's not that, it's not that the Son of God was not exalted before his incarnation. That's not what Paul is saying here. But this Jesus of Nazareth, this one who is fully God and now fully man, has been gloriously, this Jesus of Nazareth, this victorious king, has been enthroned in his resurrection and his ascension at the right hand of God as the victorious one, who in being obedient to death on a cross has defeated all our enemies of death and sin and Satan. He has been exalted to the Father's right hand and can never be unseated and never replaced and his kingship is never in doubt. As great as his condescension was for us as a humble servant, so great is his ascension as our conquering Lord. So what do you do with this? What's the appropriate response to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11? 
What do we do with this God-man, this humble king, this servant Lord? Well, let me remind you of what Keller said that we quoted at the beginning. In the end, you can't simply like anybody who makes claims like those of Jesus or that Paul is claiming here in Philippians chapter 2, or that the whole New Testament claims. You can't simply like him. If there's anybody here this morning who likes Jesus, he was a good example, he was a good teacher, he might have been a very good prophet. Let me just tell you, those options are not open to you. You have not investigated hard enough. You cannot simply like Jesus. Keller is right. You cannot simply like a man who says, I am. Who says, before Abraham was, I am. If I tried a few of Jesus' phrases on you this morning, you would throw me out quickly. Public order at the back would be quickly rushing to the front, one on one side, one on the other, grabbing an arm each and taking me out. It would be so scandalous. You cannot simply like someone who says the things that Jesus says or that the New Testament says about him. He is either a wicked liar or a crazy person and you should have nothing to do with him ever. Or he is who he says he is. And if that's the case, your whole life has to revolve around him. And you have to throw everything at his feet and say, command me, because you are the Lord. So there are two appropriate responses as we say, command me, to Jesus. They are trust and they are surrender. Let's have a quick look at both of those. The appropriate response to Jesus is to trust him. If he is the Lord, if he is the one, as Paul writes here from this ancient creed or hymn statement, if he is the one who's been exalted above all things and seated at God's right hand and the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, then the only logical response is to trust him with all that we have. Charles Spurgeon was, uh, still is, probably, possibly the most famous English preacher after George Whitfield and John Wesley ever. And every preacher likes to quote Charles Spurgeon from time to time. It's like you get a point for doing so. And Charles Spurgeon was a phenomenon of his day. He was just absolutely, extraordinarily, unusually impactful. He's most often remembered with pictures like this. As an older man, he died in his 50s, I think. Uh, but he's most often remembered like this. But he began as a 17-year-old pastor in Cambridgeshire. And then at the age of 19, he became the pastor of New Park Street Chapel in London. He was remarkable in his learning, remarkable in his eloquence, remarkable for his day in the power of his preaching. But at the age of 22, the crowds were so vast that they had to find a new facility. And they happened upon Surrey Gardens Music Hall. And they decided to meet there for some time. And on the, I think it was the first occasion that they met there, huge crowds flocked. There were 12,000 got in and 10,000 outside. 
So, such was this guy's extraordinary impact. At the age of 22, who's 22 here? Put your hand up. At your age, at your age. So in 1856, he was preaching to this massive crowd at Surrey Gardens. And some prankster in the audience shouted, Fire! And a stampede began. And people were rushing here and they were rushing there. Spurgeon was on the stage probably not quite knowing what to do. There are different accounts of what happened to him in that moment. But in the stampede at this Christian meeting, seven people were trampled to death. And 28 others were severely enough injured to be hospitalized. Spurgeon was absolutely and utterly devastated, as you can imagine. And he's 22, newly married. He recorded later, perhaps never a soul went so near the burning furnace of insanity. From that day on, he regularly knew bouts of depression. He was a, I think he missed one in three Sundays in his pulpit through depression and illness. He suffered terribly. And he was, after that fire shout and the deaths and the injuries, he was wandering in a friend's gardens. They took him away for a little while to recuperate from the shock. And he was walking in the garden, not quite knowing what to do, what to think, what would happen to him, what would it mean for him. And his mood changed entirely as he came upon Philippians chapter 2 and these glorious verses. Because it dawned on him, it's like the Holy Spirit spoke into his heart and said, I am still on the throne. He concluded that Jesus is still highly exalted. That hasn't changed. Nothing has unseated him. Jesus still reigns. And it doesn't change what's happened, but it changes what's ahead. I wonder if that's true for you this morning. Why is this happening? Why is that happening? Why did this go on? And those are really big and deep and meaningful questions. And none of them are belittled by what Spurgeon went through. None of it is belittled by the scripture. But as you see what's happened to you or happening to you, you can look up and see he is exalted. He is risen. He has ascended. He is still on his throne. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And I will be there bowing and confessing to his lordship in that great company in that day. Trust. Maybe this morning, what you're going to need to do is to trust him again because he is Lord. Then the second response is to surrender. You see, if Tim Keller's right, if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is who this passage and the rest of the New Testament says he is, then he, the only logical response is for me to bow down and surrender. To bow down because he is worthy of all praise. To bow down because he reigns, to bow down because I can trust him, to bow down because he is God.
In a moment, we're going to stand and sing. But what I'd like us to do first is this. That's kind of three things we've said this morning. One is that the vertical must work out in the horizontal. It may be particularly that God is speaking to you about how you're relating in one of your contexts. But it may be whether, you, whether you've recognized Jesus as Lord for decades or whether this morning is the first morning you've ever recognized Jesus as Lord. I'm going to ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you, as we're in quiet in a moment, to bow in surrender. And for you, that might simply mean just bowing your head where you are. Or it might be that for you, it is actually far more meaningful and far more profound to get on your knees and surrender. And you might need to, as you do that, say, Lord, it's this. I'm choosing to trust you. It's so difficult, but I choose to trust you. You're my Lord again. Or it might be that you're saying, you are Lord and I surrender. I surrender that pattern of sin that I'm in. I surrender the stuff I'm doing. I surrender and give it all to you again. And as you bow your head or kneel, can I please ask you to do some business with God? If you've never owned him as Lord, I'm inviting you to do that this morning. He's a wonderful Lord. If you've been a Christian for years or a short time, let's just bow our heads. You might want to kneel. It might be really important for some of you to kneel. It's not that English a thing to do, but for you it just might really matter. Because for you that's a really humbling act. So I'm just encouraging you to bow your head or kneel and say, Jesus, you are Lord. I choose to follow your pattern of love. I trust you as Lord. I surrender again. Let him be Lord today. Now speak to him. Speak to him. Tell him where you're at. Tell him why you're bowing on him. you need to give some stuff up. It's a really hard thing to do. Some of you need to pick some stuff up. That can be hard to do. Some of you need to confess. It's this area, Lord.
And then here's what you do when you've always done business with God, whether here or on your own. You don't stop the internal posture, as it were, of bowing and being humble. But you stand tall. Because if you've had to confess sin, you confess sin not just to feel miserable. You don't trust him as Lord because, well, I'd better because you're the Lord. No, you do both of those so that you can stand strong again. So we're all going to stand. And we're going to sing this song of devotion and dedication. Because he's the Lord, isn't he? He's the Lord.